Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we're speaking with Paul Willard, a Silicon Valley-based VC with some awesome operating experience across four different very successful startups. Paul is setting up a new fund called Grab VC and is focused on Robots as a Service, or RAS for short, a market that by some estimates is expected to grow to $34 billion by the year 2026. We think you will enjoy our conversation about robots and why this market is growing so quickly. Paul, thanks for joining us today. And to kick things off, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background. I know you're starting a new fund, but it would be more interesting, I think, to start with who Paul Willard is. Tell us a little more. Yeah, I have a crazy background too. So in the 1990s, I worked at the Boeing company as an aerodynamics engineer, building hardware business models, most complex hardware maybe in the world. And that's where I got started. My undergrad was from Iowa State, where they invented computational fluid dynamics. I rolled right into the Boeing company. And then got my master's degree at Stanford, graduated in 1999, internet 1.0 going crazy, and I just stayed. And I worked for four startups over the next 15 years, uh, NextCard, Coupons.com, Practice Fusion, and Atlassian. Three of them IPO'd. Practice Fusion didn't IPO, but it sold for hundreds of millions. It still was insanity growth. And so I had four insanity growth cycles. That's a good track record. Well, it wasn't me. It was the team. And anybody who's worked at a startup knows that. But yeah, but thank you. I feel very fortunate and very lucky. Still a good track record. And what got you to go into venture? A friend of mine was starting a venture capital fund and recommended I think about it. This is Jason Portnoy. Subtraction Capital was the name of the fund back when. And my goal, I, I love being part of these startups. And specifically, I love being part of the team. I love meeting these amazing, like Silicon Valley is full of characters, insanely ambitious, insanely smart. And we believe we can change the world for the better. And, and I love being a part of that. I love being a part of these teams and meeting all these people and hanging out in the foxholes with them. But I could only do that at a startup about once every four years. And so the goal being an investor was to see if I could up the cadence of that. So I'm a very unusually involved investor. I like to think not pushy, not, not forcing myself on startups, so to speak. But if a startup wants it and enjoys it, I will typically go to their all hands meeting, work out of their office in the beginning, a half a day every week. The cadence usually tapers down as time goes on and they get bigger. But the goal originally was, can I be a part of more than one of those teams every four years? Can I really up the cadence on that? I also felt like I had a lot of great experiences in my background, everything from engineering to you know, growth marketing, even finance. And I felt like applying it to one startup at a time that I could just do more being involved with more than one startup in terms of sharing that experience and trying to help more than one company grow quickly at the same time. So that, right. that's where it started anyway. 
And as such a hands-on VC, what's really important about that? And from a founder's perspective, what should they be looking at for an investor to show that early on in the process? Yeah, the beauty of my broad background is that I can help wherever the founding team of a company has a hole, I can probably help fill in. I, I can help recruiting often because I've just worked with so many different teams and people that are you know, leaders in the Valley now. And so my breath is helpful. I, I have an attitude where, you know, I don't want an armchair quarterback mm-hmm. at all. And I was taught at Boeing, actually, that the people doing the work should be in the best position to make good decisions for the company. The people doing the work, they know their market better than me because they live, eat, breathe, sleep it. And they know their team members yeah, as they should, yeah. better than me. Yeah. If I have an advantage, it's only because of experience, which I should really be able to share. And shame on me if I can't share the experience and put the information in the hands of the best decision maker for that company. Right. And so that attitude and that approach and having spent so many years and just knowing how to stay out of the way, remembering the time that investors came in and like just caused chaos inside of startups and, and being aware of myself enough to stay out of their way above First and foremost, do no harm, so to speak. You know, it's a delicate balance. It really is. But at the same time, I think founders appreciate more than anything, really just me being there by the water cooler and me being an objective sort of reality check for them all the time. Founders, as they should, are so far in the weeds and so deep in the forest, whatever analogy you like that it's nice to have somebody that's coming in from more of a helicopter view, more of a forest level view, just to say, hey, objectively, are you thinking about this? Have you thought about that? And, but, but letting them do the work, obviously. So I have to ask you to tell, following on this thread, to tell the story of Zipline, because it's one of our favorite companies and it showcases what you're talking about. So I'd love to hear about how you got involved. Oh yeah, you bet. So Zipline... I was having breakfast with another founder, Adam Gettings, actually, in 2014. And we were talking about some of the things that we had done in our past. And that's when he found out that I had worked at Boeing and designed airplanes. And he said, a friend of mine, crazy ambitious friend of mine, is building a robot airplane delivery company. And you got to go talk to him. You're the only investor I've ever met that's actually designed a real airplane. And so it got started specifically because of my operating background, which is apropos, really, if, if you think about the way that I work. Sure. And so when I went in at Zipline, there were four people, five people, something like that, very early. But I saw the ambition from Keller at the CEO front and Smart Smarts across the board, all three co-founders, aircraft operating experience from Will, second co-founder. And then third co-founder, Keenan, one of the strongest engineers that I've met and a robotics expert involved with the Ross, one of the, one of the co-founders at Willow Garage as well. It was just a really strong team. And I had spoken with a lot of companies that were trying to make something fly because of my background, but a, a lot of them needed lift to drag ratios or skin friction values that were just not physically achievable. And they either didn't know that yet or something, but like it just didn't work. And Keenan, on the other hand, was using very conservative estimates like an engineer would and going for very incremental, achievable on the aerodynamics front. 
his rationale was it was the area that he had the least strength. So he wanted to make sure that he was the most conservative there. And he was well within the boundaries and they could provide value with conservative numbers on that front. So that's how it got started and invested in the airplane company back then in 2014 and started going to their all hands meetings. So that's been my Monday morning for a lot of years now and have seen the company grow from four people, five people to hundreds now. I'm still at their all hands every Monday morning. I actually, you see the prototype zip line maybe up there. Behind you, yes. Obviously our audience cannot see it, but it's amazing. Was that one of the first ones that they designed? That is one of the first ones. It's called the Cardinal Model. If I saw a crashed airplane laying around when I was out there for the all hands, I would just grab it and throw it in the back of my car. <laughs> and if you get two or three crashed prototypes, you could rebuild them as one complete-ish one. That could be worth a lot of money one day, right? I've taken on the unofficial role as sort of historian. So then I, I also have been rebuilding the first delivery drones in Rwanda and sending them out to air and space museums here in, there's one in the Hiller at San Carlos, there's one at the Seattle, there's one in San Diego, there's one at Wings Over the Rockies, and there's a handful of others around also. So it's one of the roles that I've taken at Zipline. So I guess I'm still pretty involved there to this day. And was that experience fundamental or related to your new fund? Yeah, that was absolutely the genesis. So when I first saw Zipline, to me, it was a software company that might sound crazy to everybody else. They were building planes. And so they thought this is a plane building, i.e. hardware company. To me, I was like, the planes are very buildable. What they're, they're not trying to do anything magic. They're, they're using off the shelf batteries, off the shelf motors. Yes, they do have to design the wing, but even the wing I knew wasn't trying to do anything magic or that hadn't been done by wings before. And so To me, when I looked at it, I was saying, this is just another computing platform to run piloting and delivery software on. And that's all actually autonomous. The planes fly themselves out. They drop a package right where it's needed within a pr pretty small footprint spot. And so to me, what everybody was paying for was the renting of delivery pilots. So it looked a lot like a SaaS company to me. And that's where it got started. And I started back in 2014 saying robotics is a service. After working so closely with Zipline, I saw that model evolving. I started to understand more like what things can you tune to make the leverage more like SaaS, to make the capital efficiency more like SaaS, to make the, the growth more like SaaS. Because SaaS has a lot of positive attributes on the business side, obviously. And so after some time, I invested in a second RAS company, which is Cobalt Robotics. Actually, that's a Cobalt right down. That's one of their prototypes oh, wow. down there okay. on Very the cool. floor, right next to the double robot, which is just a production double robot that I bought. And what does that one do? Security space, right? Yeah. So that right. one does indoor office security. So mm -hmm. they roll around and patrol office spaces at night, ask people to scan their badges. And if they run into problems that they can't handle autonomously, they'll remote a human in and let the human do the fancy judgment work. And if I'm not mistaken, it's 65% cheaper than traditional security guards, correct? It's at least that, depending on how you do the math, because there's no training time for these. Right. There's no vacation time. There's no sick days. They can run 24 hours a day on Saturday and Sunday. There's no overtime pay. And so 
they, and there's no turnover. Right. There's no turnover ever. So no recruiting time either. They don't need health insurance. And so there's a, there's a, there are many differences between humans and them, but they're well suited to do what they do. Do you think robots like that, this is very random, should look like humans or should they look more like a robot? Wheels are a really efficient way to roll around. Except when stairs are involved. Yeah, they're not so good at stairs. ADA compliance in the U.S. makes stairs not necessary most of the time. You know, those things can operate elevators just fine. Which is pretty impressive, really, because once the doors in the elevator close, you're in a shielded box and you're on your right. own. You know? <laughs> wow. But, but yeah, they can operate elevators and they can open the ADA doors with the motors on them. So, so they can wander through spaces just fine on their own. And because they're wheels, they're super efficient. Cobalt deliberately wanted them to be not intimidating. Most of, That's the, time, good. Most of the time, they're rolling up to employees that work there. Right. So your goal is not scare the night staff. It's, it's actually check and make sure that they feel safe. <laughs> they feel more comforted that the robot is there. So you see fabric sides on cobalt robots. Uh, in fact, it's the same fabric that they use in cubicle walls. Interesting. And, and the height of the robot is dictated so you can see over cubicle walls and see across the cube farms. But it's still short enough to not be dominating to a human. So the psychology is really interesting, right? The decision-making that must go on behind the scenes of, okay, do we want this to look intimidating or not? Obviously, depending on the function of the robot. I think that's fascinating. So on that note, so as you would say, robots as a service, RAS is the new SaaS in a way, right? And so it's a sector that's growing extremely rapidly. And in fact, it's estimated to grow to nearly a $34.7 billion worldwide market over the next three years with a 23% CAGR. So I have two questions. So one, would you help us um, understand more thoroughly what RAS really is and what that means? And two, I would love to know what some of the trends or specific markets, such as enterprise building, security management, or warehouse operations are leading to the surge? Sure. So I, th I think RAS is now because of the confluence of three waves. And one I spoke about, and that's the hardware, so right. the commoditization of really good, reliable motors. Thank you, Tesla. Lithium-ion batteries, thank you, laptops, and little sensors, whether it's cameras or inertial reference units, but that mostly came from mobile phones. And all of those things have become very low cost where you can assemble a pretty capable robot, of, capable of doing a lot of different things in a lot of different spaces for not very much money. Mm -hmm. And then simultaneous, there's software like the robot operating system, ROS that's allowing you to leapfrog and build a more capital efficient manner than ever before. A really good robot team can have something like a security robot working in 12 to 18 months, which is pretty impressive. And then the third wave is the data wave. And so thanks to artificial intelligence, we can make data out of the entire physical world now. We can structure data out of the entire physical world. How far away is that wall? How many laptops are in this office space? Is, is that the right number? Did one just walk out the door? And so there are all kinds of sensors that we can use in addition to artificial intelligence on the computer vision side to structure data. Any one of those waves could make for a pretty decent investing sector, but the three of them hitting at the same time are, I think, why we're really going to see a lot of solid RAS use cases yeah. being identified. And so... Just SaaS, really, you start with, so in the case of the Cobalt, 
the fact that it doesn't go to sleep or throw parties in the office or whatever. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and it could just roll around all night long tirelessly and never miss anything with its perfect computer vision and never get bored. It's like, these are jobs that are well-suited to robots. Conveniently, the jobs that are really well-suited to robots, most of them humans don't love, honestly. And they're, they're typically very high turnover jobs. And they take advantage of the superpowers of software and computers as well. And things like fast math, giant databases, perfect memory and huge memory. They have a lot of capabilities that go beyond humans, but, but they're narrow. They can only do little things. It turns out there's a lot of little repetitive things though that I think you're gonna see. You mentioned warehouse operations and Fetch is doing great there. Right, yes, they are. <laughs> I'm not an investor there, unfortunately, but that was a timing thing. We just invested in a company called Zippity that can roll up and down the aisles of a grocery store and check tens of thousands of SKUs every night looking for stockouts. Every single day, tens of thousands of SKUs, perfect error-free inventory. It's amazing. Is that similar to the company that Walmart was working with? Because they recently announced that they stopped working with somebody that was doing the same thing. It is a competitor to Bossa Nova, yes. Got it. So it was it not ready for prime time? Do you think that the customers are ready for that kind of disruptive force? I'm not sure what Walmart issues with Bossa Nova were. I wish I knew. <laughs> but I can tell you that Zippity's customers are very happy with the capability and they're creating value in multiple areas that will help their customers. Are most of the use cases now of all these robots around replacement of human labor or are there other unique use cases on top of that? I hear this question a lot. Understandably, I think we're all concerned. But occasionally they replace human labor. Often though, they're doing things at a price point that makes human labor a non-starter. So humans weren't trying to do it because it would just cost too much. And so they can create new markets and, and have value props that work where human labor didn't. So for instance, on Zipline, as an example, that same model would be doable technically with a remote control pilot for each Zipline airplane, but it would be so exorbitantly expensive that the business model would never work. More examples with Zipline. Zipline may have displaced some people who used to ride emergency blood orders very occasionally on a motorcycle or something yeah. across difficult terrain. Right. Now, the Ziplines get it there faster. They get it there more reliably. They get it there for lower cost. And because of that, you can use Ziplines for lots of things, whereas the motorcycles were probably used for a very small number of cases. And Zipline has created way more robot operator jobs than any motorcycle, the delivery jobs that it might have displaced, which I think is a pretty good trade in the long run. And so there is a, definitely a balancing act there. I looked back in history, the one in my head that I always remembered was the laser printer. So a lot of people that ran printing presses, their work just went away when the laser printer came around. But all of a sudden, everybody needed a pitch deck and there were a whole bunch of graphic designer jobs that didn't really exist before. And so there is a displacement. It, it does take time to absorb and for the transformation to happen. When I chased this back and I was looking back, the fabric mills for cloth is, is another famous example of, of this. My favorite one was the earliest one that I could find though. And it was actually the Erie Canal. 
so the Erie Canal put a bunch of stagecoach drivers out of work. And there were a lot of complaints that the canal was killing the stagecoach driving industry. But it grew the total economy because of goods that could be shipped now cost effectively that couldn't be before. Grew the total economy of the Midwest that was now accessible, something like 3x in a very short period of time. So net, I think that's how this always goes, that as you get more efficient, your economy gets more productive, but in the near term, it can be bumpy. And so we need to be cognizant, need to be aware. And where do you see the future of robots as a service going? What does that look like? I like to say RAS today is like SAS was a dozen or so years ago. So I think you're going to see it coming into verticals and just like SaaS, initially looking for those Pareto kind of verticals where you can create a lot of value with as narrow but repetitive and valuable a task as possible. And Mm -hmm. I think you're seeing the robots aim for those today. Yeah. Whether it's warehouse operations or delivering blood and medicine or security guards or inventory and grocery stores. There are a lot of those verticals. There are more of those verticals than there are world-class roboticist founders today. And it'll be that way for a little while. And so we're in these early days where right now you get one world-class team that's really crushing a vertical and the other world-class teams look at it and they go, you know what? There's 50 verticals I can go after. Why should I go after that one that's already got one of us crushing it? And I think it's going to be that way for a few years. And then eventually the talent will catch up. And it's a people game and a talent game. And it's the exact roboticists from Zipline are going to go out and they're going to build five more future unicorn robotics as a service companies that will crush it in the future. And I'll be glad when they do because most of them know one investor and that it's me. <laughs> if you sit back, are you at a point now where you can foresee what the applications will be? Or do you say, hey, I'm not going to try to guess anything. I'm just going to try to network into the roboticists everywhere and have them bring me the use cases. One of the fun things about being an investor is you really don't have to have good ideas. You just have to recognize them. That said, there are a few areas that I'm waiting to see something in. And When that happens, often I'll see something close and then I'll try to talk them into what I think is a bigger one that I want, that I really want to see a company go in. And a friend of mine came to me and said he wanted to do something about the trash problem. And I was very excited about building a RAS model to get the recyclables out of the landfill trash streams and likewise get the non-recyclables out of the recyclable trash streams. And Everest Robotics was born and he's gung-ho, full on, cranking away on that right now. And he's got a little RAS robot that'll keep your trash streams appropriately cleared and cleaned. And also, since it sees all the trash rolling by, it will also create structured data about all the trash. What are some of the obstacles or challenges that a lot of RAS companies face early on in your experience? Well, sometimes there's a vertical that's technically a great one to go after with a robot, but it might be a slow buying vertical. So they're still subject to all the problems of go to market. It's amazing, really. It's so parallel. So all the same downfalls that have taken out a million SaaS companies are there. The only new additional ones are just with the world-class roboticists, you don't usually see this, but sometimes with somebody that has less experience around robotics, 
you'll see a company trying to take on too much or trying to do something with hardware that's not really a commodity capability today. And it's, you're going to have to spend a lot of years and a lot of capital developing that hardware to get it to do what you want. And it's going to kill your capital efficiency. It's going to kill your time to market. But really, that's the only sort of additional one. All, all the rest are all the same problems of, as SaaS. You, you just have the one additional hardware one, which is biting off more than you can chew. So now for a super serious question, I'm not going to segue away from this, but what is your favorite robot movie of all time? Because <laughs> as a robots guy, there's a lot to choose from. I, I, I'm a robots guy, but I'm such an engineer. I'm like, do I even have a favorite robot movie? I actually hate, the, I hate it when people ask me, what's your favorite this or what's your favorite that? So if you don't have one, I won't judge uh, you. I really like The Matrix. It's not really a robot movie, but it's certainly a simulation movie. No, that's on there. I actually looked this up before I asked you when we were just talking. Wally's is on there, which is one of my least favorite movies of all time for whatever that's worth. I thought iRobot was pretty good. Yep, that one's pretty good. The Terminator is a classic. How far are we from liquid metal? <laughs> it is nowhere in my radar, but I, you know, I'm an engineer and I'm a startup person. And so I'm all about execution. What you can't execute it today, I almost don't care about it that much because <laughs> it just doesn't affect me. And so liquid metal is definitely on that list. Arms are getting better and lower cost. And so arms are going to hit a tipping point at some point soon here. The great debate is when exactly, because people have been saying that same thing for 10 years. Yeah, we'll see. Wheels are definitely in a good place. Cameras are in a great place. Inertial reference units and accelerometers are in a great place. LiDAR is doing really well. So there are a lot of technologies that are very accessible today and can come together very quickly. Enough that we can go out and go after hundreds of different verticals. We'll be busy for a while. How about how far from a point when delivery of packages is mainstream? Mainstream's tough. You've seen like the Kiwi robots or the starships today. I don't mind those coolers rolling around. I don't feel like they're dangerous. And I'd be happy to get my lunch delivery or my Walgreens prescription. And in a medium density area, that's probably a pretty efficient way to go now. And so you're seeing some of those scale out. But I think different densities demand different things. It's really tough to beat the efficiency of literally backing up the truck to a condominium that's 50 floors high and just emptying the whole thing into the lobby. That is a really efficient way to move goods. Now, if you have prescription medicine, you need to get it here right now. Okay, it doesn't work for that. But for lots of things, it does. But if, if you get out to, let's say, delivering a toothbrush in winter in Colorado on dirt roads up in the mountains, like a truck is a really inefficient way to do that. And the cost of the gas is way more than the cost of the toothbrush itself. And suddenly flying an electric vehicle and doing a drop in a front yard sounds safer, better for the environment because you're not burning gas and lower cost. And so I, th I think in different densities, different solutions are going to make sense. And we're seeing them scale now. So we're going to jump now into the four standard question segment that we ask all of our guests. So question one is, if you could have a magic wand and change or improve something about the VC industry, what would it be and why? I have a strong bias toward operator investors. I just think that there is a special kind of empathy that you can only get from spending a decade in the foxholes with your coworkers on a startup and going through those periods where you're not sure if you're going to die or raise, 
and pitching 70 different VCs before you put out the press release that makes it sound like this is the perfect investor for you and maybe the only one that you ever talk to. So if I could wave a magic wand, I would make the apprenticeship path go through startups. Yeah, that's a good one. And then secondly, if you weren't a VC and money was not a concern, what career would you have and why? If I, wow, funny, because like the VC, it was never a goal for me per se. Mm -hmm. I always really liked coding. I really did. And for the first three startups that I worked for, I kept going back to being an individual contributor. It's just as we scaled, I was equipped to take on more responsibility and help the company more. And so I did. Right. But, but there's a part of me that just longs to write code again. What's your Twitter handle again? WebGeek. At WebGeek. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that or winemaking, right? You could be a winemaker. Because <laughs> I'm still gunning to get a bottle from you. <laughs> I, I love the zen of particularly pruning the vines in February. There's nothing quite so... It's just tune out the rest of the world, mind meld with this one root coming out of the ground and figure out, because a, a, a root makes 40 or so shoots every year that you have to trim down to about four or five. So you're cutting 90% of what it's trying to do off. And you got to figure out the 90% that should be cut, which four or five are going to make the best grapes for you. Just really mind melding with that vine for a minute and then going to the next one and doing it again for hours and hours and on end. There's just something very Zen about it to me. Yeah. Is that more Zen or is drinking it? No, definitely the pruning <laughs> is more Zen, okay. but, but I do enjoy tasting the fruit of my labor, literally. As you should. <laughs> my favorite varietal of wine would be, we've already previously talked about this, so I can't give it away. But. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a Zinfandel fan. Ridge got me started. So I blame Ridge. I didn't really know about Zinfandel until one of my classmates, Keith Badgley, opened up a bottle of Ridge after we took a test at Stanford in 1998. And my mind was blown. And I've been a Zinfandel fan ever since. Awesome. This is not sponsored by Ridge, but hopefully it will be in the future because that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the third question is, who is someone that you look up to and why? There's so many people. This is the problem. Right now, though, I got to say Keller at Zipline is just doing such a phenomenal job conscientiously growing that company and scaling that company. He's just being so deliberate with every decision that he's making. And he's being so human all while scaling a company and growing it at insanity pace. And it's really hard to do both of those things at the same time. So many people find challenges there. So I am just admiring the heck out of what Keller's doing over there now. That's awesome. I'm sure he'd be very happy to hear that. And so what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? When I was at Boeing, I took management training in the, the Boeing philosophy. And that's upside down management, which Keller also practices. I'm such a big believer of. And so it's the idea that the, the smartest person isn't necessarily the one that's going to win. It's the person who can get everybody to help them and get all the smart people to help them is, is going to win every time. So if, if you're leading, if you're managing a group, your job isn't to be the smartest person or make all the smart decisions. Your job is to empower a giant team to 
and then make sure they're getting all the credit. Definitely. That is, that is such good advice. And it's so true. So tell us, Paul, the name of your new fund and what the genesis was behind that name. So our new fund, Bruno Bowden and I have an early stage robotics as a service and an automation more broadly fund called GREP VC. GREP is a Unix command, one of the first Unix commands that you learn in Unix world typically. And it's a search command. And so it is a super geeky, but super generic name for a venture capital fund, just to say that we're searching for companies to invest in. Paul, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights. Thank you. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. Thank you.